Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It grieves me to say that I think in my generation, the church needs to start taking sin more seriously. I say it grieves me to say that because I've been a pastor in the church for 30 some odd years now. But we seem to be losing our grip on what sin means in our lives and by extension what Christ means in our lives. We have slid into a time and an age where in order to keep everybody in the tent, we have lapsed into a kind of moral ambiguity or relativism. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, I'll try not to judge you, you try not to judge me. Everybody just sort of waddling around in this backwater eddy that doesn't go anywhere. And then we wonder why the church isn't thriving. When the church struggles to move forward, we struggle not FUMCO, but the church. We struggle because of sin. And the hard part about this morning's gospel lesson is that it is insider language. It is for the disciples. It is about the church. Peter, as he comes to Jesus, represents the church, not the world. This is insider talk. We have no right, no reason to expect that those who don't have a relationship with Jesus will ever abide by the rules of sin and repentance and forgiveness that the church has been discovering these last 2,000 years. But we who are on the inside, we need to begin to take sin more seriously in our generation. Guy walks into a, I'm sorry for this, I, I took a train ride home yesterday and there was a 70-some-year-old man who just thought he was the reincarnation of Henny Youngman. Um, <laughs> And we sat there over lunch, and in the train, you have to, you get assigned people to eat with. Oh, look, here he is. And uh, so he starts talking. A guy walks into a doctor's office, and uh, he says, Doc, something's really wrong with me. The doctor says, you have a cold. He goes, well, I'd like a second opinion. Nate, if you've heard this, forgive me, okay? So the doctor leaves for a minute, comes back with a big old tabby cat, and the cat walks around him three times, and then the cat sits down in front of the patient and meows. And the, and the guy says, what was that? He said, the, it's a second opinion. The cat says, you have a cold. He says, doc, you don't understand. The symptoms are so bad. It's got to be something much, much worse. The doc says, hang on. I'll get a third opinion. And he brings in a big old Labrador dog, a big black lab, and he walks the dog around him, and the dog sits down at the feet of the patient, looks up and says, woof. And the doc looks at the man and says, there you go. He says, what was that? He said, that was the third opinion. The dog says you have a cold. Now that'll be $250. And the guy says, $250 for that? He goes, well, I'm only charging you $25, but the rest is for the CAT scan and the lab, <laughs> and the lab screening. So. Ten miles with that guy on the train <laughs> brought me to the edge of the limits of my forgiveness. But you walk into a doctor's office 
and you're sneezing and your eyes are running and you're aching and you're coughing a lot and the doctor will tell you you have the flu. You don't have an ache, that's a symptom. You don't have a cough, that's a symptom. You don't have a sneeze, that's a symptom. What you have is the flu. And in our generation, we are getting caught up on all the symptoms of sin that keep cropping up in our lives. We call them sins, but it's spelled with a small s. The problem with which we struggle is sin, spelled with a large s. It first crops up in the Garden of Eden in our scriptures. God comes out in the cool of an evening, surveying his creation, noticing the tranquility and the peace, but there's a creature missing. In fact, two creatures, a male and a female. Adam, Adam, where are you? And finally the voice, we hid ourselves from you, Lord, because we were afraid. We are naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I forbid you to eat? And so this is how the scriptures begin to grapple with understanding where this condition comes that seems to be in every human being. And in fact, Paul would say to the Roman church, it is in every human being. It's a condition that causes us to want to hide ourselves from God because we are naked, vulnerable, and afraid, and in the core of our hearts, we know it. Sin is that which keeps us from being in communion with God. It entered the human race a long, long time ago. And its cure was given to the human race in Jesus of Nazareth, the only begotten Son of God who hung on a cross and accepted everything vile and wrong that humanity could throw at him and put it to death once and for all so that we would no longer sacrifice hundreds and hundreds of rams, that we would no longer have rivers of blood. He put an end to the bloodletting. Let this be an end to it once and for all so that you know that the heart of God is to come and retrieve his people and restore them to himself. But there's only one thing required in the entire, in the entire deal. That is that we come clean, full, and honest before God. That we take our sin seriously. I knew a man once who had a very difficult conversation with his wife because he had betrayed her. And they sat down, and when he finally could no longer live with the weight of that, looked across the table, held her hand, and told her everything. And, and he told me later there are two ways that she could have killed me that night. One would have been to say, you're a liar, you're a cheat, I don't ever want to talk to you again. Be gone, pack your bags, you're out of here, pal. He said, that would have been the end of me. But he said, if she had said this instead, oh, I thought you were going to tell me something bad. Is that all? No big deal. We'll get through it. Just forget about it. He said, that would have killed me. 
But in the depths of my vulnerability before the sheer face of my own sin, my own exposure to the sin that is in the world, in the midst of that, she saw through it and saw my humanity. She reached in, she took hold of my heart, and she said, this is bad. But we swore we'd hang in there through everything, and we'll get through this together. And somehow, by the grace of God, I will forgive you. That's the start of life. And there are so many people in the churches that I have served who sit across from the table and they look at each other and they start to see the moment when it's all going to come out and they say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Pass me the salt, would you please? Mmm, tasty dinner tonight. This is good. Let's just get through another day and I'll put myself to sleep and I'll try to get through it and I'm dragging this anchor, this weight this awful thing, I'm dragging it around with me, and pretty soon it has grown to monstrous proportions in my life. There's an old line from a song by this rock group, You uh, Too, that we become a monster ourselves so the monster will not break us. And the monstrous weight of our own sin becomes so great that after a while we see ourselves walking down the street and every other person who annoys us begins to be such a big problem to us that we just, we just want to destroy them. I'll never forgive that. Oh, I can't stand these people. Oh, I can't do that. We are blessed with a president who has become the tweeter-in-chief. And some of those tweets, they just drive my colleagues nuts. And all they want to talk about is the tweeting. And I'm saying the tweeting isn't the issue. The tweeting is the cough or the sneeze or the whatever else. It's sin that has hold of us. And you and I have a boatload of it inside of ourselves, enough to last a lifetime. And until we have conquered that and taken it seriously, what are we doing wasting all of our God-given time on this earth complaining about others? Do you know how much ten talents is worth in today's dollars, about $27 million by today's minimum wage standards. The man was forgiven $27 million, and he found somebody who owed him about 100 denarii, which in today's standards would be about 12 grand, a third of a year's salary. And he couldn't forgive the 12 grand moments after he was forgiven 28 million. That's the story that Jesus told to illustrate the point. Whatever it is that someone has done to you that has got you so balled up inside that you can't hardly move forward without despising the ones around, whatever it is, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what was done to Jesus on the cross. For they didn't just take hold of him, and they just didn't hurt him physically. They told him that everything that his life stood for was false. They blasphemed against his character. They taunted him while he hung there dying. Oh, you're going to save yourself, huh? Where are the angels now? You saved others. What's wrong with you? They, they created the most vile and despicable portrayal of all human beings. And Jesus looked down from that place and said, Father, forgive them, 
They're not even aware of what they're doing. And if you think Jesus was saying it's okay to not be aware of what you're doing, he was making a theological statement. He wasn't saying that these people were ignorant in their sin. What he was saying is that all of the scriptures from Isaiah that prophesy about the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the servant of God, all of those scriptures say that he must be betrayed, that he must suffer for the sins of many, that he must be killed and then after three days rise. And what Jesus was saying, forgive them, Father, for in the midst of their sin, they are actually bringing my work to completion. They think they're hurting me, and they're giving you the glory and the victory. That's the depth of their ignorance. And he forgave all of it. More than that, when we receive people into the church, we say, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you repent of your sin? And do you accept the freedom and the grace that God gives you in Jesus Christ? And people say, I do. And in those baptismal vows, we confess that we are sinners. To receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ means to make a statement about life that I am filled with the sin that has tainted the world. I am full of it. And you're saying right now, Pastor, you're full of it. And it's all right. But it's hard enough to forgive in the world where sin begins to show itself symptomatically in the smallest of ways. I went over to a colleague's house many, many years ago. And she had a little two-year-old, and the two-year-old at two and a half was blessed with a baby sister. And the green-eyed monster of jealousy just came out. And I, I went into the parsonage with her to have a bowl of soup and a sandwich for lunch, and her, her two-year-old was running around, and the newborn was asleep in the back room. And I casually looked over, and about that high off the ground, just, just a couple of feet, was just a whole wall full of permanent marker just scribbled around. And uh, I said, nice artwork. And she looked at it and said, oh. And then she called her two-year-old out. And she said, little Sally, do you see those marks on the wall? And the girl who was smiling and bouncing around, her face fell a little bit. And she said, do you know how it got there? And she said, yes, I do. And she said, how did it get there? And she said, baby sister drew it there. <laughs> she said, go to your room and think about this until you can tell your mom the truth. And she went to her room for five minutes crying, a huge scene, and then she comes back, are you ready to tell the truth? And she said, yes. And she said, who drew that? And she said, Darth drew it. Now, Darth was a giant black Labrador retriever. <laughs> And she, her mom looked at me and just shook her head. She said, they're supposed to be cute. They're supposed to be cute till they go off to school and some other poor parent's kid is supposed to teach them all of this stuff. Now I'm the pastor and everybody's going to say, oh, look at the pastor's kid and what the pastor's kid does. But it's sin. It isn't the parsonage. And it isn't the kids at school. It isn't our poor upbringing. It's sin. And the world is struggling convulsing in its grip right now. And we need to take that much more seriously in the church. As a pastor, I will 
tolerate within the bounds of Christian community just about everything except unforgiveness. Because unforgiveness is an insult to God. And it's, a, it's blasphemous to take the name of Jesus without clothing ourselves in his forgiveness and therefore extending his forgiveness to others. Jesus has set up a system of justice in his church that is designed every time to end in forgiveness. It leaves us saying, well, we know we have to forgive. Now let's sit down and figure out how we can get there. But that's what we're called to do, to forgive. Within the bounds of this community of faith, we practice forgiveness. This is our dress rehearsal for life in this room. This is where we work it out. This is where the director stops us and says, no, go back to your spaces, try those lines again. Nothing grieves the heart of God more than schism. Nothing grieves the heart of God more than excommunication. Nothing grieves the heart of God than to have his children sit there every Sunday and say, I, I bless you, I bless you. From the depths of my heart, I bless you. Now please get me the heck out of here because I can't stand any of these people that are sitting around me. Nothing grieves the heart of God more because God knows that every person within the bounds of Christian community who struggles with sin is the one who cannot forgive. Every person who has practiced a life of unforgiveness within the bounds of the church is one who has not yet fully dealt with the sin in our own lives. The secrets, the burden, the bucket of stuff that you never told anybody. If, if this isn't the place in all the world, if this is not the place where you can sit across from the table and no matter how many tears it takes, look someone in the eye and tell the truth, if this isn't the place, there is no place on earth where that can happen. It's not that we're going to avoid the mistakes. There'll be plenty because those are the symptoms of our sin. Unless you think that the people who founded the Methodist movement were were the purists, the ones who, who had all this dialed in. Let me share with you just a couple of entries from John Wesley's journal 250 years ago. The founder of the Methodist movement said, I went to Aldersgate Street one night to a Moravian church where the speaker was reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. You got this? A Methodist in a Moravian place listening to a preacher Read from Luther's comment on Romans. A lot, of, a lot of saints from the past in that little picture there. And he said, somewhere in the midst of the speaking, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew that Christ had died for me, even me. And I felt that he had indeed taken my sin from me. And I felt a strange peace come over me. And I knew that I was saved and I was given the assurance of that salvation. Sounds blissful, doesn't it? To know in your heart, in the core of your being, that it's all been taken away. And it happened to John Wesley that night. And you think, wow, give me some of that. But then three pages over, just a couple of days later in his journal, he said, I awoke and was alarmed to find that when the peace of God had filled my heart, sin was not killed in me, it was merely stunned. 
and all of the old temptations were crowding back in. And for a moment, I began to panic, but I called out to God. And I felt that this time he indeed heard my voice. And he sent ministering angels. And my old fears and doubts and temptations fled away. And I was once again in the peace of God. He was describing the church. That sequence of John Wesley's journal brought me to the Methodist church because he was describing a life that takes our sin seriously. We are justified before God by the work of Christ on the cross, but we are not yet sanctified, not holy. It's a mop-up operation like the firemen who go around the fire after the burn and put out the last flare-ups. You and I have sin that is still being rooted out of our hearts, crowded out by the Spirit so that we become like the likeness of Christ. And every day we wake up and find that we're not yet there, the only thing we can do is come to one another, confess our sins, and beg the forgiveness of God's church. This is the practice of our life. And if you do that enough, you can change the world, or Christ can change the world through you. I look back on the last century, it's fun to say that, isn't it? And I think in time, people will come to understand that the great miracle of the last century, besides walking on the moon, was the nearly bloodless way in which South Africa turned its government leadership over from a handful of white Afrikaners to open free elections. These Afrikaners were outnumbered 20 to 1. But God gave that country the grace. Yes, there were riots in places, and yes, there were skirmishes, and yes, some people faced atrocities. But in the end, on the grand scale of things, as revolutions go, it was a miracle. But the greater miracle is that the new, leaders, the new government set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, headed by the right Reverend Desmond Tutu. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was simply set up to say that if you were on one side or the other of this great struggle they had to end apartheid and there were atrocities committed, you would be forgiven completely so long as you stood before the commission and you confessed everything that you had done. The shootings, the tire burnings, the secret police in the night, the riots, all of it. It would be forgiven. Your part in it would be forgiven if only you stood in the docket and made a full and complete confession of everything you had done. Somebody, knowing that Desmond Tutu was a Christian, said, aren't you putting conditions on forgiveness? He said, I place no conditions on forgiveness. Of course we are Christians. Of course we have to get to forgiveness. Of course I stand ready to forgive but I have to know who I'm forgiving and what. That docket, that place of confession, changed their world. It was the only way South Africa could move forward. There couldn't be public executions. There couldn't be reprisals. There had to be forgiveness. It was the only way to move forward. It changed their world 
because there were people living in South Africa who had practiced the art of forgiving sin in one another. Telling the truth. Making confession. And then looking someone in the eye and taking their confession to heart. Say, this is bad. This is really bad. But we have Christ. And we have each other. And by his grace, we are going to get through this together. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say must very often. But he said, you must, you must, you must forgive each other. It starts right here in this room. I wonder if we can. I have no words for you to read this morning as a response to what God is speaking to my heart and yours. Instead, I want to invite you into a minute of silence with me. I don't know about you, but when I silence the world around me, I find the noise inside of me is way, way louder. And I want us each to live in that place for a moment this morning. You have called yourself a Christian. You have covered yourselves with $27 million worth of Christ's forgiveness. And though you have shown forgiveness to some of the others in your life around you, there's one person in your life you may not yet have fully forgiven their small debt, and that is yourself. So in this minute, this minute of silence, would you turn inward and see if there be any unforgiveness residing in your heart? And then, in the name of Jesus Christ, let him take it from you today. Let us pray in silence. As far as the east is from the west, so far did God remove our sin from us. Thanks be to God for the gift of his son Jesus Christ and for the power in his name to forgive one another. Amen.